All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 6 and this morning so that we might avail ourselves of this look at who Jesus is in the account of the feeding of the 5,000. Mark chapter 6. You remember last time when we spoke about this account of the feeding of the 5,000, I told you that there were two principles that emerge from this text. And that the first one is that when Jesus was preparing to perform this miracle on the 5,000 men and no doubt hundreds if not thousands of women and children, that his first and primary ministry was not to feed them physically but to teach them. In Mark 6 verses 30 to 34, the Bible tells us very plainly that the crowd continued to come to Christ and the disciples, and that his first and primary ministry was to teach them the Word of God. John even makes it very explicit in his parallel account when he says that he spoke to them about many things concerning the kingdom of God. And that is always and forever Jesus' primary ministry to all of us, to anyone, is to teach spiritual truth. Before someone can begin to appreciate the physical nourishment that they receive at God's hand, we must first realize the importance of the spiritual nourishment for our souls. And that is what emerges, emerges from this text here in Mark 6, 30 to 34. But I also told you that there was a second principle that we want to center in on today, and that is that Jesus had a plan to have compassion upon the crowd. And we see the beautiful occurrence of this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and it shows us the incredible compassion of Jesus for the physical needs of people. I have been thinking much about this concept of compassion as I have read and reread and read again this concept of the compassion of Jesus, and I've begun to ask myself questions maybe that I've really never fully asked myself before. Now, that's what happens when you study the Bible intensely and you begin to form questions in your mind as you continue to meditate upon the truth of God's Word. And I began to ask myself questions. Well, what was the compassion of Christ? How did it manifest itself? Well, what was He doing when He healed the people or when He cast out devils? What was really at the heart of why he was doing what he was doing? And while there are many things that are going on underneath the surface as to why Jesus is doing these miracles as we see him in the Gospels, one thing emerges that is so abundantly clear, and that is this, that Jesus simply has a love and a compassion for people around him. Whether he's looking at the brow of the hill over the city of Jerusalem, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem how I would have gathered you as a hen would gather her chicks, but you would not. Or as we see him here on the mountaintop with the crowd of thousands, and he sees them and they're in need of physical nourishment, and so his compassion reaches out to them. He has a tremendous compassion for people. I know that as I continue to ask myself these questions, it's probably not as much as 
the more I understand Jesus, as it is the more Jesus has me understanding him. And as I understand Christ, I begin to ask myself questions of personal application. Lance, are you characterized as a compassionate person? Do you reach out in compassion to other people, especially if it were to mean that you would lose your own sleep or that you would go hungry for the purpose of meeting other people's physical needs? This has been brought home to me on a number of examples. I'll just share two of them with you this morning. One of those is Frances Allen. She was in the first service, so I can talk a lot more about her in the second service, not so as to embarrass her, but to use her as an example of one who has compassion for people. If you see from the Lord's Day Bulletin, she is celebrating this past Friday her 88th birthday. And she's still serving the Lord after many, many years of knowing Christ. And as I was thinking about this text and thinking about the compassionate people in my life and what I could learn from them, I thought about Francis, especially on Friday as I was driving down with Curtis Thomas and Byron Earls for the funeral service of L.D. Vance's sister, who did in fact die on Monday of that automobile accident. And when I was driving down to De Queen, I was sitting in the back seat and I was thinking about compassion. And I was thinking about what I needed to do to prepare my heart to be compassionate toward L.D. and Shelley Vance and their family. And I thought of Frances Allen and how she has been compassionate for many, many people over her life, but one in particular, Betty Thomas's mother. For many of you, you know that Betty Thomas's mother has been ill for a very, very long time. In fact, her mind really is not uh, in the mode of understanding and discerning things. Her mind is incapacitated now, and she more than ever needs the kind of physical care that someone could provide. And she's in a home, the Presbyterian Village down there, and I've visited her on several occasions. And Frances Allen, 88 years old, who could be saying... I'm older now, as someone else who's younger and who has the capacity to reach out to someone like Betty Thomas's mother could do so. I've served all of these years. Let's let some of the younger people, which, of course, if you're 88, means a whole lot of us, maybe someone else could reach out. I've done my time. I've served my service. And yet every single day of her life, Frances Allen goes and serves Betty Thomas's mother lunch. And I was struck by that, and as I continued to think about dear Frances, who is herself not in the greatest of health, I thought, you know, I love that woman, and I love what she represents. And while we were driving there Friday, I said, Curtis, let me borrow your cell phone. And so I gave her a call because it was her birthday that day, and knowing that I wouldn't have the time to come back and, and to go visit her, I called her on the phone, and I sang happy birthday to her. And she actually said it was pretty good. And she was thrilled, and I was able to speak with her and to, again, encourage her heart with regard to service and ministry. And she represents for me at least one person who, while not perfect, of course, is someone who has compassion for other people. She wants to be involved in selfless service and reaching out to others, even if that means that she herself, as an 88-year-old woman, is probably able in so many others' minds to say, I've done what I could, someone else should move into that ministry mode. Another person that I think of is 
a person who's become very near and dear to me, Marguerite Batterton. Now, most of you don't know Marguerite Batterton because she hasn't been to the Bible Church regularly in terms of worship services for quite some time. Now, she is not able to physically come to the services and sit for really any length of time. And just the other day, I took my two oldest boys to go see her. I just want her life to rub off on them. And we sat down with her and we began to talk to her. And I said, now, Marguerite, you know why I'm here. I'm here to help celebrate your upcoming birthday. And because of that, I want you to tell my boys how old you are. And she said, boys, at my next birthday, which at that time was coming up in just a, a week or so, I'll be 93 years old. And we began to talk, and you could see my boys have dollar-sized eyeballs at thinking of someone who was 93 who was still living and talking with them and interacting with them. And I told my boys, now boys, you think I'm old, but this lady is 50-some years older than I am. And she's lived a long time, and we began to chat, and we had a wonderful conversation. She told me about the time for almost 20 years she played in the Little Rock Symphony. And I said, Marguerite, when was that? And she said, don't ask me those questions. And she said, oh, I think it was probably uh, around 1930 to 1950. And I realized that here was a woman who'd lived so many years and had so many experiences I knew nothing about. And I said, Marguerite, I know that you've ministered to a lot of people, and I want you just to describe for my boys what you've been doing in ministry. She's at the Good Shepherd Retirement Community, and I've gone there on a number of occasions to preach in their chapel service. And she began to describe for me some ministry opportunities that she's had, even as she has been really locked into a situation where you would say in your mind, now, here's someone who's done a lot of things for the Lord for a lot of years. Uh, she can now rest. Well, what she said was up until recently, for about 12 years or so, she has been coordinating all of those chapel services, contacting pastors to come in and preach God's Word. She's been coordinating all of those things up until recently. And then when she couldn't do that, she said, I picked up a ministry, and this is now even several years ago, where there are 12 blind people that I sit in front of me and that I read the Word of God to because they can't read it themselves. And so she said, but it's coming to the place where physically I think the best ministry that the Lord has for me now is reading and knowing Him more intimately and praying. That's my ministry now. And of course, after you pick yourself up off the floor because you're so terribly convicted, you say to yourself, now when you see human examples like that, they really have begun to understand what it means to be intimate with Christ and to emulate Him and to see who He is as they read about Him in the Gospel. And a person like that is a person, I think, who comes close to imbibing the compassion of Christ for other people. And when you look at Mark's Gospel, I think maybe Marguerite Batterton or Francis Allen, who, if they were living back at that time and were a part of that crowd and who had been physically nourished and spiritually taught, might very well emerge from that kind of crowd to be those who had learned the lesson 
who had responded to the teaching and who had begun to serve all of the rest of their life for the Messiah that they loved. That's, I think, one of the beautiful pictures from a text like this. In verse 35, we're told, when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them, the crowd, away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. Now, when you read that first section, verses 35 and 36, you see a very different picture of the two examples I've just given you. You say, how so? Well, isn't it ironic that Jesus has just sent this band of disciples out two by two to go into the highways and the byways to compel people to come into the kingdom of God. They had to work furiously hard to try to do anything they could to discern who was interested in the good news and who was not, to shake the, the dust from their feet of the ones who weren't, and to be received into the homes of the ones who were, and to preach and teach and pray and counsel and do all of the things they could to try to find the people who were interested in this Messiah. Isn't it ironic that now, as the crowd of thousands are assembled on the mountaintop, where you don't have to go search, you don't have to go look for, you don't have to go out into the highways and byways, Jesus, by the very power of his existence, has motivated these people to come and to be right there. Now, isn't it ironic that the disciples say, send them away? Send them away. I think that's why Jesus chastises them in this verse 36 and says, you give them something to eat. That's the emphasis of the verse. You give them something to eat. You say, what's really going on here? I mean, you said that this was a text that explains the compassion of Jesus, and that is true. But there is something far more profound that is going on here. This is a test. It's a test of Jesus toward his followers to see if they recognize who he is to see if they recognize his lordship over nature, to see if they recognize that he's God come in the flesh, to realize that he is the unique son of God and that he has the power over the elements, the power to transform bread and fish and multiply it so that everyone would be full and satisfied, and to affirm that he is the one who is the teacher of righteousness the one who's the very embodiment of righteousness. And it's a test. The whole miracle has at least in part been designed to show the disciples more than it is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It's a test to see whether or not his disciples will be transformed themselves into true followers of the Messiah. You say, well, I don't see that in this text. Well, you would if you turn to John chapter 6. And the parallel passage, John chapter 6. 
In John chapter 6, as I read it for you last Sunday, says in verse six, uh, verse 3 of John 6, Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Again, uh, a note to tell us the importance of the analogy that Jesus is about to display. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, that is one of the disciples, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now that's the same question that essentially was asked in Mark 6. But John gives us an insight. He says in verse 6, This he was saying to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. So it was a test. Jesus had orchestrated this entire scenario so that the disciples themselves would be tested to see whether or not they affirm that Jesus is who he is and that he could do what he's about to do. And my friends, this is a test for you and for me. The spiritual implications of this passage are clear. The miracle of Jesus is designed to show us to goad us, to motivate us, to challenge us, to come to a place of affirming whether or not we know who Jesus is and whether or not we affirm that Jesus has done what he has done. This is an evangelistic text. This is a text that challenges each one of us to ask, do I know this Christ? Can I sing the song that was sung that the only joy, the only life goal is to know Jesus because He's the best. Can I affirm that if He is the unique one who can perform the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that no one else can do, am I willing to live under the implications of that kind of lordship? Am I willing to affirm that He is the one who is God? What do you think the disciples responded with in this test? Do you think they passed the test or do you think they failed the test? Well, many of us would say, it seems pretty clear to me that if Jesus was going to go to all this trouble to present a test to his own disciples, and if it was Jesus the one who was doing it, then surely they would pass the test. Surely they would respond rightly to the Messiah. Well, notice... Mark chapter 6, verse 51. Jesus, Mark records, walks on water, and that's the next text that we'll be seeing. And after he walked on the water, and you know what occurred there, he went into the boat with the disciples, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. Why? Well, because of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, Verse 52, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Is that not incredible? An opportunity to pass the test, to see who Jesus is, 
and to affirm with all of your heart that He can do anything because He's God come in the flesh. But the disciples are dull, dull of hearing. Hardened, the Bible says. They're not passing the test. They're not affirming that. And while we would be quick to be shocked at the disciples' response in the midst of seeing the physical person of Christ, the actual presence of Messiah, the one who transforms the bread and the fish, the one who walks on the water, surely any of us would respond by saying, that must be the Son of God. But remember, their hearts are hardened because Jesus has not opened their hearts as of yet. Just like us. We can hear the miracles of Christ. We can read the gospel accounts. We can hear lilting music. We can hear wonderful sermons about who Jesus is. And we can go through all of that. And still, our hearts can be hardened, dulled. The challenging question, the question of the ages for each of us is, am I going to affirm who Jesus is? Not just that He was the Son of God. Not just that He was God come in the flesh. Not just that as a bare assent to the facts. But am I going to allow Jesus Christ to be the Lord of my life? Am I going to allow Him to rule over me? Every decision I make, every thought that I have, am I going to, in the pattern of my life, respond to the Lordship of Christ? Now see, all of us as evangelicals, if we went through a checklist and were asked, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Check. Do you believe that Jesus could perform any miracle He so desired? Check. Do you believe that He is the one for which we must live our lives in obedience? Notice I didn't say check. Because while being evangelicals and by saying all of the right answers, and by coming to a Bible-believing church, the question still remains, am I willing to live under the Lordship of Christ? He is Lord. But is He my Lord? Do I love Him? Is He the best? Do I submit to Him as Lord? You see, it's a test for us, too. And it should have been that when Philip was tested, he said, yes, Lord, you can do all things. There's no reason to send this crowd away. You're the giver of life. You're the bread come out of heaven. You're the one who nourishes souls physically and spiritually. There's no reason to send anyone away. But instead, because of that dull hearing, in verse 37, they said to him, Incredulously, they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? The implication is a denarii was a day's wage. And given the numbers of the crowd, you mean to say that we'd have to gather up about eight months' worth of money and then be able to go and buy a sufficient amount of food and even there, all they would receive is a little morsel. Lord, how can it be? 
it's not enough. We can't meet the needs of these people. Let them be sent away so that they can fend for themselves. You see, that's why Jesus chastises. You, you give them something to eat. <laughs> he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said five, two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. It would be easier for them both to be counted and it would also be easier for them to be fed. And so Jesus instructs them to do something which was very common and that is to separate the people so that the work could be done and organization would be a top priority. And even though they're dull of hearing and even though they do not understand the implications of what Jesus is doing, Praise God, Jesus doesn't stop there and say, you failed the test, that's it. No miracle will be given you. The patient, loving, compassionate, incomparable Christ, even in the midst of a dull and drowsy and spiritually dead band of disciples, he moves on because the crowd still needs to be ministered to and he's going to be patient with these disciples until they understand the picture. And that's our Christ, isn't it? Aren't you glad that Christ has been patient with you and with me? The dull hearing that we have, the ignorance, even the rebellion. And yet God is so gracious, so merciful. He moves beyond the dullness of our heart. And he continues to do the work that draws us to himself. And so, verse 40, 41 says, He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And notice this, notice the verb tense, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. You know, the beautiful reality of this is that he doesn't say, all right, men, this is just yet another example of a lesson you haven't learned. Step out of the way. Just, just go over to the corner and just watch. I'll take over. I'll do it. No. He does what only he can do. He thanks his heavenly Father. He lifts his eyes to heaven. He takes only the five and two. And when he blesses it, God through Christ, transforms it into more food than anyone could possibly eat. But he does it through the mediating help of the disciples themselves. He gives it to them. And he says, now you give them something to eat. You see, he takes the resources that we could never muster on our own and through us ministers to others. And that's the way of the Christian life. There's no way we could ever muster up any of the resources in which to minister powerfully and ably to others. And God, miraculously, as He transforms those loaves and fishes, does in the natural for you and me the ministry gifts and abilities and talents and treasures and time and opportunity, and we're able to minister to people. And as we're able to minister to people, 
that dull hearing by God's design becomes quick hearing. And we begin to see. We begin to realize, okay, now I'm beginning to understand. I am supposed to minister in the power of Christ even if it costs me thirst, hunger, and sleep. That's really the, the matter before us. Jesus is telling the disciples, you're tired, let's come away and rest a while. And when the plan has been carried out and yet the crowd breaks the plan, that's the way it is. Yes, we all need rest. Yes, we all must have those times of respite. But if the crowd comes, and if the day dawns when people's needs need to be taken care of, what do we do with our sleep? What do we do with our hunger and our thirst? We set it aside. Because in ministering to others, God energizes us beyond any sleep we think we need and any hunger we say we have. I remember an example of a couple of pastors who had ministered in an emergency situation and they ministered for hours upon hours upon hours with no sleep and no food in their bodies. And when there was just a brief moment of interlude, knowing that they had to quickly go back and begin ministering again, they stopped off at a fast food restaurant. And I remember one telling me what he experienced as he sat with the other pastor and he said, Lance, I remember distinctly that when my fellow pastor bowed his head to pray for the meal, he said, Lord, I thank you so much that we don't really need this food right now because you have given us the energy and the power necessary. We don't really even need this right now, but we thank you for it. You see, because his mind was so fixed on ministering to someone else, he realized that the hunger really wasn't a hunger pain. It was the pain in his heart to minister and reach out to someone else. And that's our Christ. And that's what he is for us. In fact, so much so. So much is he the incomparable Christ. Verse 42 says, they all ate and were satisfied. You see, when Christ does a miracle, he does it fully and completely. And in abundance. You know what that was for? For the disciples. Because what would they eat the next day? What would they eat the day after that? Oh, they have everything. He's supplied it all. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. The test for you and I, are we going to pass it? Are we characterized by trusting Christ in the meeting of people's needs? Do we believe that Jesus is who He is and that He can do what only He can do? Do we trust Him for that? Are we exercising total dependence upon Him as we minister to others? Do we really, in the thin recesses of our life, in the holes and the cracks and the crevices, do we realize that only God can meet us there and do we rely upon Him as the bread of heaven to give us any physical and spiritual sustenance? 
And are we willing to labor diligently, even in a period without rest, with hunger and thirst? David Garland, one of the commentators on the Gospel of Mark, says these insightful words. This incident also reveals that Jesus recognizes his disciples' need for rest. One cannot serve others 24 hours a day. Ministers need to take time for themselves. And Jesus' word, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest, is an important one for every weary laborer. But this incident also reveals that when we do try to get away, we often find more hungry people, both spiritually and physically. The need can be overwhelming, and we are tempted to send the suffering and needing away empty-handed. We may have heard or even voiced the same protest the disciples made. It will cost too much for us to do anything about their need. Let them take care of themselves. They are not our responsibility. What we may be really saying, Garland says, is that we will not have enough money for ourselves if we don't take care of ourselves and them as well. Disciples of Jesus need to do more than lament the crowd's hunger and the lack of food while sending them away with nothing. We have not done our duty if all we have done is point out the problems in society and lament them. He says some make a career out of itemizing the world's ills. The church, however, has been called out into the world to do something about these problems. We must minister to the spiritual needs at the root of many social problems and extend material aid to those who are in need. Everywhere we turn, we find the need of a hungry crowd and little or no food. Jesus instructs us to feed them. Sending the hungry and needy away to fend for themselves does not solve the problem. Jesus works the miracle when His disciples share what they have with others. The church cannot neglect either spiritual or physical hunger. In this account, the disciples are stymied when they think that the task is impossible or the cost too great. Only when they have faith to tap into the divine provision do they accomplish the job and provide everyone with enough. Jesus insists that the disciples share in His ministry to the world and take responsibility for the crowd. We may be exhausted and need a well-deserved rest when Jesus says to us, you give them something to eat. Disciples are always servants of others, called to feed the sheep and not just themselves. The lesson from this account is clear. They will always have enough to feed the church. Modern disciples are no different from Jesus' first disciples, however, and frequently cannot see that even when they are drained physically and financially, they have the resources to help others. They are challenged to tackle impossible problems with limited resources and to discover the possibilities of God. Before we can say there is nothing that we can do, send them away. We should first go and see how many loaves we have. Garland concludes by saying this. Before we can say we have counted and we do not have enough, we need to venture out in faith to help others. When Christians on average give about 3% of their income to the church, and even less of their time in direct ministry. We know that we do have enough, but we are keeping it for ourselves. You see, when you do good works, and when you do it in such a way that maybe even no one else knows, you're really passing the test. Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. 
Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, when you faithfully, silently serve, God will reward those and you will pass the test. When I last visited Marguerite Batterton, 93-year-old gem of a lady, I noticed that she loves books. She called them one time when I was with her, my friends. And as she had been reading for numbers of years, studying her Bible, I began to notice that uh, a lot of her books had the spines broken off had the covers tattered and torn, the pages were falling out. She even had to use some rubber bands around some of the books, and of course that makes it fairly difficult to read. And she said, oh, I would just take the rubber bands off and I would do my best to try to read my books. And I said, Marguerite, can I borrow some of these books from you? And she said, well, sure. Don't you have enough of your own? And I said, well, yes, I, I do. But I just want to borrow them for a little while. I knew how much she treasured them, and so I took all of the books that I could possibly find that had any kind of damage to them at all, I placed them in a box, I brought them back to our church, and I asked the deacons if they would allow me the opportunity to spend some money so that we could rebind these books for her, and we did that, and when they arrived in my office that day from the bindery, and they had all of the spines, beautiful new covers, all of the pages had been restored, it was just glorious, and I had the privilege of taking some of my family out back to her. and She had forgotten that I had taken some of those books, and so when I arrived, I had a box, and she said, what is that? And I said, do you remember those boxes that I, uh, those books that I took in that box? And she said, oh, yes, I remember that. What did you do with them? And I said, here they are. And I gave her those books back. And she started crying. And she said, I could never thank you enough. Please thank the men of the church. I had my friends back. You see, a people who can serve in that way need to be rewarded. And when you serve, and when you pass the test, great is your reward in heaven. Let's pray together. Dear Father, thank you for giving us this account of the incomparable Christ beautiful Savior who is to be affirmed as God come in the flesh, who is to be affirmed as the one who is the teacher of righteousness, is the one who is to be glorified because he's the compassionate Christ who serves when he's tired, who ministers when he's hungry. And one who is to be affirmed even by the most dull of hearing. And so, Father, I pray that each man, woman, and child in this place would affirm that this Jesus is God. He is to be worshipped as the preacher of the gospel of God. 
and the compassionate, miracle-working God. May none of us leave this place dull anymore to repent and believe in Christ as Savior and Lord. We pray in His name. Amen.